Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Um, I haven't met some of you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to talk today. A little bit of a different message today um, than what I'm used to preaching. And this is going to be out of 2 Timothy. We're going to hit two or three big passages. One will do most of the lifting for us, but they're all in 2 Timothy. So if you have a device or a Bible that you brought with you, and we have these free ones outside, ironic that on the day I get to talk a little bit about the Word of God, I forget my own. So it's at the house, and so I'm exposing myself. Yes, this is a guest Bible, but it also proves that they work. So if you don't have a Bible and you want one, we have a gift for you out there. If you want a nice leather one, I'm sure we have one in the lost and found that you can grab and take home. That's all yours too. It's probably been there for a while. Um, Second Timothy, as we work our way through this series on how to grow as a disciple, how to change, how to grow, how to look more like Christ. I think this is going to be helpful for us. It's been helpful for me. Um, but also, while you're turning there, breaking news this week, I think Wednesday morning, I saw the headlines, which was just a few hours old on this, and that is that the Church of England will soon be discussing whether or not they will continue referring to God as a he. Um, they are looking to gender neutralize God. Uh, I did not hear a lot of explanation of why they're doing that, besides that it would just be very popular with culture. Um, there's a lot of passages. I actually don't know what they will do with them. Um, one particularly is how we are taught to pray, how Jesus teaches us how to pray, our Father in heaven. Not sure what they're going to do with that, but doesn't matter. The good news is they're open to discussing what's next for God, okay? I'm sure he'll be waiting anxiously for their decision. And yes, that's breaking news, but it's a little bit boring news at the same time because breaking news a few months ago is about 2,000 Methodist churches are looking to splinter out of the UMC, something that they've pr pretty much held together for a couple hundred years over the subject of LGBTQ marriage and ordination. This is not a fight they had in the 1800s and in the 1900s. They weren't fighting about it then. They're fighting about it now. It wasn't even a point of discussion 150 years ago. And that would be breaking news if that wasn't so boring because we already know from the 70s and the 80s, the Presbyterians were splitting into two different denominations, the PCA and the PCUSA and about three or four others that have just different initials in front of them. And that was also regarding human sexuality, inerrancy, and even abortion. Again, this is not a disagreement they had in the 1700s or the 1800s, but they are having it now. And to be clear, since the beginning of time, there have always been church splits. There have always been church schisms. People don't always agree. Sometimes culture can slip in and inform and get their fingerprints on what we would call good, sound teaching. Now, sometimes the disagreements that we might find with each other in a split or in a schism, it still allows a little bit of alignment to varying degrees. What I mean by that is, is just because we might have a difference in how we interpret a passage or a chapter or an idea in the Bible, we still might be able to walk side by side looking forward and working together. Uh, maybe a church that has a different view of Bible translations to use. We're predominantly an ESV church, but if another church was an NIV church or a New King James, I'm sure we could figure it out. Another one might be mode of baptism, maybe church governance, how spiritual gifts are exercised in a setting just like this. I mean, listen, we're going to differ. We're going to differ than some of those churches, but on the absolute essentials, we'll probably find a lot of agreement. 
and therefore we're fine. Sometimes, however, the points of contention are too big and those issues actually become separation issues. And in many cases like that, not all of them, but in many cases like that, it's not just that a passage is interpreted differently, it's just that sometimes they're deleted wholesale. They'll just delete a word or delete a sentence or a chapter or even a book sometimes. And that would be provocative, except for that's also boring. Because if you go back even further in time, and some of you already know this about it, but Thomas Jefferson, when he was in his late 70s, maybe 75 to 78 is their best estimation, he would use a razor blade or a pair of scissors to cut out pieces of the scripture that he felt was problematic or irrelevant. And he would take the rest and he would copy it and basically paste it into a journal and call it his Thomas Jefferson Bible. It's been digitized. You could still find it online for free. You see, God's word has always been abused and resisted and deleted, redacted, considered problematic. And that would be provocative, except for that too is boring. Because if you go further back in time, you're going to find Paul speaking to it. The Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy. And this is where we're going to start reading with our Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. What Paul says is, the time is coming to Timothy. The time is coming when people won't endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Basically, your peers aren't always going to like what the Bible says or the fact that you're saying it. So instead of listening to you, they will accumulate people, voices that will say what they really want to hear. And in doing so, they will step away from what is true and logical and right, and they will wander off into narrative, into fiction. That's effectively what he's saying, not just to Timothy, but to you and to me. And listen, I love the phrase itching ears <clears throat> because it's just so descriptive. When you think about it, it's kind of one of those things that I don't even have to really describe it for you to know what it means. We just kind of intuit that. Today, we call it confirmation bias. We have an official word for it today. Because we want what we want. And we want it the way we want it. And so all I have to do are find the voices that tell me I can have what I want. That I can keep what I want. That I can keep doing what I want to keep doing. And I can gravitate towards those, va those voices and, and pick up what they're saying. You see, our... our our culture is so similar today. This passage, it doesn't really read like it's 2,000 years old. Not to me, anyway. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 and 5, I'm going to go right back to the very beginning of chapter 3. It says this. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Listen. What strikes me most about this passage is the last thought, not the long list of flagrant sins. That's kind of, that's kind of easy to see, right? We look around and we're like, yeah, I could probably spot all of those if I just scrolled for longer than 10 minutes. You can see all of those on display. 
but it's the last one, that there is a people that would love the flesh more than God and they would have an appearance of holiness but no essence of holiness. They will behave as a Christian, but they won't be a Christian. I mean, you've seen this. You've seen this because you live here, right? You live here. We live in the land where this is very on display for us. It's what makes our mission field so incredibly challenging. When I talk to pastors that fly in or come here for a visit from places like the Northwest or the Northeast, that's the number one thing that shocks them. How on earth do you guys do ministry in a place where everybody is behaved and everybody's a Christian? How do you do it? And sure, I've lived in places where, I mean, when people don't love God, they'll tell you straight up to your face they don't want anything to do with the Lord. And I actually found that a little bit, oddly, refreshing and easier to do ministry. We do have a challenge of this here. That's true. You've seen this. When the masses walk according to the residue of what it was a Christian worldview but do not love Jesus, it's a form of godliness that denies the power of Christ. It's why you'll catch me using phrases like, those who love Jesus and those who don't love Jesus. Certainly you've caught me saying that. Instead of the word Christian, which I don't have a problem with the word Christian, it's a missiological decision for me to make of just saying instead of Christian, those who love Jesus. Why do I do that? Because I know I talk to so many people and there's so many people that will hear a sermon like this or watch it online that will consider themselves a Christian because of how they grew up. But as soon as I say, those who love Jesus, that requires an appraisal and potentially a little bit of honesty of, well, love Jesus? I mean, I believe in Jesus. I like him most of the time, but adore him, fascinated with him, enjoy him, not so much. That's what I'm trying to evoke. So look at all of this. What Paul is telling Timothy, the flagrant sin, the religious shell, the intolerance for sound teaching. I'm having a super hard time seeing much of a difference between Timothy's world and our world today. Very difficult time. So then it strikes me how hard it must have been for Timothy to just stay the course. Just to not shrink back. Not to let culture lean too hard on him. I want you to just know, and this might color in how you are reading this, when Paul is speaking to Timothy in this moment, Paul's in jail. But he's not imprisoned like he had been imprisoned in the past. This imprisonment, he's not allowed to have friends come in. He can't leave, go, and come back anytime he wants. In the first imprisonment, God had told him, you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're not, you're not going to die here. So he probably had a little bit of a different experience. This one, he knows he's going to die. He cannot leave. All of his friends are gone. He's in jail. He's not coming out except to face death itself. Timothy sees all of this. Timothy sees all of this. And Paul sees that Timothy is painfully aware of how culture is shifting and what that could do to a, uh, just a Christian like Timothy. And so he says this, chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. And from how childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the Old Testament there. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. This might be one of the more important passages in your Bible, um, right here. 
the fact that God's word is breathed out by God himself and is effective. It gives you the wisdom you need for salvation and the wisdom you need to live a godly life. All of God's word is effective to disciple you and me for any occasion. You see, all of scripture, all of this, even the parts that cause schisms, even the parts that are uncomfortable for us to try to explain to 2023, all of this is originating and breathed from the most inner places of God himself. I find this fascinating. I mean, just imagine this for a moment, what we hold in our hands, what we hold in our hands, the very words of God translated into the language that we speak commonly every day. The, the advantage that we have, the unmistakable privilege that we have, he has disclosed everything we need to become new humans in this. Everything we need. Everything you need to be saved. Everything you need for holiness. Everything you need for satisfaction. Everything you need to be joyful. Everything you need for hope. The architect and the builder of the cosmos has breathed the book. <laughs> It's fascinating. Anytime we want to discover the mind of God, you have unmetered access, unfiltered access. I have to be reminded of this sometimes. I have to be reminded that it's not just another book. I know it's not just another book. But sometimes I have to be reminded of the weight it is. I mean, I, you walk into my office, I have hundreds and hundreds of books. And I actually have dozens of Bibles sitting around with all of the books. And sometimes I have to be reminded of the weight and the grandeur and the beauty and the thoughtfulness of what God has given us in his word. It's inspired by the one who imagined molecules and can see the last second as clearly as the first in human history. And of all the words that God could have given us, of all the things he could have said, of all the things he could have shown us, he gave us this, this. It could have, it could have been 10 of these, he gave us one. It could have been twice as thick. It could have been half as much. But he gave us this. This is what he had in mind. Again, I know I say it a lot. I find that fascinating. And in all of its original form, it had zero errors in it. No errors. I mean, even though it's been translated hundreds of times into hundreds of different languages by hundreds of people, it never double speaks. It carries its own integrity. It interprets itself. It agrees with itself. There's simply no text in human history that carries such power and permanence. We know of no text. But I think if we were going to be honorable to this passage, the 2 Timothy 3 passage, it's important to know that when Paul says scripture or maybe ancient writings, he is referring primarily to the Old Testament here. Okay? The Old Testament. Because the Bible as we hold it, was not in existence to the degree it is now when Paul was saying all of this to Timothy. So what we have is a New Testament that is a lot larger and has been added to the Old Testament. I mean, our view of Scripture is a little bit different than what Timothy's is, is because Scripture itself has expanded since the day of Timothy. Just to be fair, we have to say that. And it's probably outside the scope of a quick message like today, but it's important to know that Jesus saw his own teaching as authoritative scripture. He, he said that in Matthew 5. You can go back and read it on your own. He saw everything he said as authoritative scripture. And listen, so did the apostles. The apostles saw all of their writings as authoritative scripture. We have this in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. 
And then later on, we'll see Peter verify Paul's letters as authoritative scripture, and Paul say the same thing about Peter. We see this in 2 Peter 3. So what we have is the greatest privilege in the history of mankind to have this fantastic and beautiful and thoughtful word of God to us to make us wise for salvation and to equip us for every occasion, to equip us for every good work. So what this means for you and me is we profit when this trains us. We profit. We grow when we invite this word to interpret our hearts, to interpret why we believe what we believe and why we feel the way we feel and what, why we do what we do. Now, honestly, and probably what makes this sermon a little bit different than another sermon on the word is I don't want to get in the weeds on how much we read this, how often, how long we read, when we read this, what books to start off with. Um, there's definitely a time and a place for that. We actually have classes for that, and those are all great questions, but I think they might be a distraction today. What I want to ask today is what do we do when we don't like everything God breathes? What do we do then? What do we do when we feel like Thomas Jefferson reading a passage and we find something that is problematic, something that is irrelevant feeling? And even if this isn't something you struggle with, your neighbor does, <laughs> for sure. I mean, before we start dragging a Sharpie across the pages, are we able to see all of God's good breathed word to humanity as something that is actually good? Because the truth is, your Bible is loaded with content that is an issue for culture today. Loaded with content that could get you into trouble. Sure, I mean, listen, you could rattle off some stuff that Jesus says, and you'll get some applause, especially if you just speak in half sentences. You could pull a passage or two out of context and slap it on a mug or a poster, and people will buy it. That's for sure. It's not going to offend anybody. There are some passages, however, that if you read, you'll get tased fired, canceled, something negative will happen, and that list is growing. That list is growing. Listen, it's normal to read some passages. It's normal. If you do this, you're normal. If you read a passage and you think to yourself, that doesn't age very well. That passage has not aged very well. I'm sure back then it made sense. 2023, I'm wondering, does this need to be updated? Passages that talk, they just mention slavery, right? They mention it. Or homosexuality. Or gender. Or gender roles. Or money. Or how we parent our kids, discipline our kids. How we are married to each other. Marital roles. Sin. I mean, it is a long, long list of passages that might feel problematic. Listen, sound teaching will not be tolerated when it disagrees with what society says is gospel truth. See, society does this as well. The community, the city of Knoxville, has its own gospel. It has its own truth, its own value system, its own scripture, I guess you can say. One of the things we teach in our missional living class, and if you've not gone through that class, we're going to teach it in the spring, and I challenge you to jump into it, because one of the things that we do teach is how to interpret and read and understand your city, which very few people, even if they've grown up here, even understand their city. Questions like, what does your city or your community see as sin? What do they see as good news? What's a hit for your community? What's a win? Who are the villains? What does your city see as righteousness? What is your city intolerant of? What does your city understand about ultimate good, ultimate evil? 
These are all important, understanding what society believes about the sound teaching that we give. I mean, because just like Timothy, whenever we sense sound teaching that we give out, not being tolerated very well, it's tempting to just go full Thomas Jefferson on the Bible, to just start cutting pieces out or avoiding some as fast as we can. And we reason when we do this. And I understand the temptation to do this, the temptation to save a friendship, the temptation to keep a door open. I understand the temptations. I've had them myself. But what we'll do is we'll start reasoning, and it starts off very subtle. We think maybe God is saying something different today than he did in the 50s A.D. or 1550 or 1950. Maybe God is saying something different. Maybe we have matured a little bit, evolved as a people. Maybe, maybe this old literature to an old civilization covered in dust is a little too old, honestly. Some of the problematic passages that we bump into. Maybe technology has changed the landscape to the point where we can probably get rid of some of this. After all, we could plug cars in now. I mean, congratulations to us. We're just a different people, right? We have, <laughs> we have all kinds of things. But maybe the Bible was for more of a patriarchal, Middle Eastern, superstitious, mystical people. And obviously we're not that anymore. So maybe we do do something different. Because it's not just technologically we've advanced. Socially we've advanced too, right? Because now we understand things like gender differently, sexuality differently, race differently. We're just beyond the caveman ethics and way of looking at the world. And before you know it, when you start reasoning down that line, you find yourself starting to call evil things good and good things evil. You start holding a form of godliness, denying the essence of godliness. Before you know it, God's not even a he anymore. Abortion is celebrated. I know I sound like an alarmist. I sound like everybody's great-grandpa right now, but listen... I've had to tell pastors farewell. I've had friends that were pastors that they just took a turn. The sound teaching, not so sound anymore. It could not tolerate sound teaching where I've just had to say farewell. Farewell. And I'm a young man for that to have happened. But friends, listen, if you're tempted to consider the Bible a relic, then you will feel compelled to make it relevant to your neighbors. All the time wondering what to do with it yourself. You ever catch yourself doing that? Trying to defend what the Bible says, but you're not even really sure. You're convinced yourself. That's the position we put ourselves in. Like we're a part of this PR company trying to refurbish the, the image of somebody that used to be great, but now it's kind of embarrassing, right? We put ourselves in that role. And then when we look through the Bible, we don't know what to really do with it anymore. We don't really know how, it, how it's appropriated to our life today. So we just kind of start skimming through it and looking for principles <laughs> and we knock the dust off of them, and we try to uh, make them speak into how we could have the, the, the bigger, better, faster family or the more impressive business, or we'll find characters and build character studies out of them. But we skip the gospel. We skip even looking for Christ. We, we stop looking for the hard passages and how they speak into the everyday today. The gospel ends up being redacted. The Bible just becomes a book about performance and behavior, but not about Jesus. Again, this is not a rant. This is important for growing disciples because once you and I begin editing the word of God, we begin breathing our own intentions and our own passions out instead of receiving the ones that have already been breathed. And in that way, we make God into our own image, right? which we're seeing whole scale 
We're seeing it everywhere. But here's the good news. We have no need to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is already incredibly relevant. All we do, like mail couriers, is disclose the relevance. We don't have to make up excuses for it. Honestly, it could stand on its own legs. As it turns out, God's word is a contemporary word to a contemporary world. It's totally adequate to do the job today as much as it was in 64 AD. This is how I know this. In Hebrews 4, we see the author of Hebrews speaking to something very similar to this. And he says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So it's dynamic and it's interpretive, the Bible, which means that it's effective for today. If you have a dynamic word that's also interpretive, then it works in 2023 just as much as it would have 123. Of course, the language requires more work, right? Because we don't speak ancient Aramaic or, or Hebrew. So it, it does take a little bit of work. And sometimes that work can be a little clunky, trying to make a, a word in Hebrew turn into magically a word that we speak in common English when there's so many differences in how the words are constructed or what was even in, in line, how we have one word called love and they have multiple words for love. I mean, there, there is some clunkiness to make it ours, but the content and the meaning is omni-relevant. It's forever relevant. It speaks to the human condition. It speaks to your anxiety to your depression, to your struggle in your marriage, to your struggle with who you are in this world, to your struggle with why you need money so bad and why you want money so bad. It's, to all of our struggles, our poverties, our, our insecurities, this is why this is important for a growing disciple. This is why we're spending time on it now. Growing disciples develop trust. Trust in the relevance of God's breathed word. And in doing so, we are equipped for every good work. Every single one. In every moment, we can reflect the glory of God and how we raise our kids and how we clock in and clock out, how we play, what we watch, how we fight, how we reconcile, how we serve, how we rule. I think as I look at the word of God and how we don't always like what God breathes out, the big diagnostic that I keep pulling to the top is maybe the admission that my desire to be equipped by God's word, it corresponds and is directly proportional to how relevant I see it. If I don't see it as relevant, I won't hunger to be equipped by it. I won't, and you won't either. About a week and a half ago, um, my wife asked me to change some plugs out in a bathroom upstairs. I've done this a hundred times, right? But all, every plug you could imagine. And so I thought, no big deal because I've done this. So I go to the store, I go to Lowe's, and I'm looking on the plug aisle, which is a little bigger than it needs to be between you and me, right? Just lots of plugs. And I knew I needed those special dumb ones that you put right by water, the GFCIs, right? So I'm looking at them, and I thought, that's what I need. I'm a little sad they're that expensive. Is there really a need for that? So I grabbed two of them, right, because I thought I needed two, and I take them home because, listen, I like a good challenge. And like I said, I've done this a hundred times. I get up in the bathroom and I take the plugs out and I try to wire them and they don't work. I know that's, I know you're waiting on, on, on edge for that punchline, but as you can imagine, they did not work. So I take them out, I plug them back in, I redo it all over again. Doesn't work again, right? So now I'm enjoying this process. Here's what I'm not telling you in the story. When I pulled the plugs out of the box, 
they were wrapped with instructions. I mean wrapped, as if the company was, was saying, hey, you might need to read this. This is not like a normal plug, right? But I just pulled it off as if it wasn't even there and threw it away with the box because I knew what I was doing. It wasn't relevant to me. It wasn't relevant. Let me tell you, it became relevant really fast, and now you find me digging through the trash, and then I read it from cover to cover, both in English and French, because I'm trying to figure out how to get these plugs in before I end up calling an electrician. I'm hungering for the information. I need to know what it says. It's incredibly relevant. I don't want anyone talking to me. I don't want the phone going off. I'm reading this instruction book. And so it is. When I don't long to find God and his word to me, it's because I don't think he's relevant for my life. Is this not true for you? Is this not true for you? It's true for me. Listen, no space for condemnation here. Not now. I get it. You didn't conquer the Bible like you'd hoped in 2023, and it's not even Super Bowl Sunday yet, right? We just didn't get it done, did we? The goal, but let me just try to encourage you if that's you and you've already fallen off the wagon. The goal is discovering God, not conquering the Bible. I challenge everyone to read the Bible. But the end goal is enjoying and adoring the person of Christ. That's the goal. Enjoy Jesus and live in the light of his gospel. Jesus is actually the point of your Bible. Christ in the gospel is the fulcrum that the entire word of God sits on. It balances on it. This is why we see in Luke 24, you could stay where you're at, but in Luke 24, see this fascinating passage where it talks about Jesus showing up with two other men on the walk to a city called Emmaus. And this is beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He taught them. Genesis and Exodus, all, the, all about Moses and the prophets, probably through some of the Psalms, about how all of them dealt with him. He is the fulcrum it all sits on. That's why they said later on, hey, didn't our hearts burn within us when he taught us the word? Right? Didn't our hearts burn within us? It's because he's the point of all of them. Jesus is relevant as God's greatest of all communicative moments to mankind. Speaks to us through nature, Speaks to us, as Hebrews says, through prophets, through the law. But Jesus is the pinnacle word. Because God does more than just breathe his word. He came to us. He came close to us. He came in us, amidst us. And Jesus would come to hold all of the law together. To hold the prophetic words together. To actually fulfill it all. Jesus is God the Father's greatest commentary on his love for you. So when God wants to communicate his love and his grace and his mercy, he has given us words, but friends, he's given us Christ, his greatest commentary, his greatest word, his greatest embodiment of all he wants you and me to know. Jesus is a living book of grace and mercy and power and authority for us to watch, for us to adore, for us to discover, for us to love. John 1, we see, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But as I said 20 minutes ago, God's word has always been resisted. And Jesus would be no different, would he? He'd be resisted to death. If we can't tolerate sound teaching, we're not going to tolerate a good teacher, are we? 
They put him to death. And so God's living book, Jesus in the flesh, would trade his life for ours, giving us grace, his favor, despite our inability to get it on our own, despite our hunger to run away from it. He would give us mercy, not delivering on our heads what we totally deserve. He would give us favor. And now as a response, we get to sit at his feet, read, listen, learn, enjoy him more and more and more. He's relevant. He's relevant to your pain. He's relevant to your doubts and your fears. He equips us. There are some practical challenges in this for you and me. There's some missional challenges too, by the way. I think some of these missional challenges and practical challenges we have today, and we did not have them in past years, we're suffering what some social scientists have called a double loss of literacy, a double loss. So this is uh, given amidst the Bible, which means we have a lower biblical literacy than we've ever had in human history. Today we do. And then we have a lower just literacy rate, just overall reading and literacy rate. And both of those are starting to come together to really do some damage in the church. For instance, 33% of high school graduates never read a book again. That's one-third, right? 45% of college graduates never read a book again. 80% of households did not buy or read a book last year. 80%. So we have a lower literacy rate, and that really affects how we approach something like the Word of God. Brad East, who is a theologian and author who's written a little bit on this, not a lot, but a little bit, he says this, Teenagers and 20-somethings today, by and large, are not readers of books. They read endlessly, as a matter of fact, but their reading takes place in 5 to 15-second chunks of time on a glowing device before the next image or swipe or alert restarts the clock. Minds trained on this form a young age, or from a young age simply lack the stamina, not to mention the desire, to read for pleasure or for sustained stretches of time. I find that to be true. I, listen, not, not to just say, hey, yeah, you 20-somethings, you can't even read a book, get your stuff together. I know what it does to me. I know what it does to me to take in those bite-sized chunks, how it lowers my stamina, how it lowers my ability to sit for a long amount of time. There is benefit in long-form reading. We, we know now that it kind of elevates critical thinking. It helps us think more critically when we can read more long-form, but that takes practical Practice, it takes time. It takes time. Those are muscles that atrophy. Hasn't it been true for you in your life? Haven't you had seasons where you were able to read a lot undisturbed and just to see it get thinner and thinner and thinner until where now you pick up the Bible or you read a book about the Bible or you read a book about anything and you can only make it a few sentences in. And then it's just a world of squirrels and shiny pennies, right? You just can't, you can't read for very long. That's what he's describing. I'm saying all that as a caveat for this, okay? Listening to, if this is you, listening to the word of God is more than just okay. It's more than just okay. It's actually the original setting for how the word used to be consumed. People did not originally consume the Bible in written form, but by word of mouth. Letters were originally read to a people that could not read to a people that did not have their own Bible. It's only been in the past few hundred years that the church has been literate enough to read on their own, or nonetheless to have a Bible. I've got like 20 Bibles in my office. It's just, it's a different age than it's ever been before. The church originally learned scripture through memorization, primarily through hearing it, 
hearing it through settings like this. Or moments of communal repetition, like a, like a, call, to, like a, a call to worship. Or a, a standard repeating scenario where people would rehearse together the word of God as part of their liturgical patterns. That's how the word was originally handled. The personal quiet time with a, a coffee in front of you and a highlighter and a study Bible, that's, that's a new and recent phenomenon. And I am all for it. I encourage it. Again, we're an advantaged people, right? I encourage it. But if, but if you cannot get there, I'm, I'm asking you to do something like listen to it. Listen to one chapter. And then when you're done, go back and listen to it all over again. And then when you're done, go back and listen to it all over again. Five, six, seven, eight times all day. Just throughout the day, when you're driving, in the morning, at night, just rehearse in your mind if that's what it takes. If that, because the goal is digesting and metabolizing the word. That's the goal. To break it down. To appropriate it to your soul. To think about it for seconds, hours, days. To think about the same passage. To wonder about it. To, to challenge other people. To listen to their commentary on it. To write about it to think about it even more, to read it about it again over and over until you have installed it into your life. I agree with Paul as he talks to Timothy. He says, continue in what you have learned. Continue. To continue. To not stop. To not shrink. I know culture's loud. I know they don't like the Bible you have in your hands. I know, I know their commentary is thick. They're not holding back. I know they've got words. I know they're going to shame you for reading and loving what you read. I know that. Continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you have learned. And when you approach the word, don't treat it like any other book. It's not like any other book. It's different. Treat it as the very breathed words of God for your contemporary life. In a, in a, in a setting like 2023, which is crazy. And when you come before it, don't just handle it differently than other words, but submit your life to it. One, one of the things that I've done, I'm not giving any tips or tricks on how to have the bigger, better, faster Bible study, right? We've got a class going on right now. We can teach another class if we need to. But what I will say is this, is, a, is one tangible take home. Whenever you approach the word of God, take a breath before you even open it and just submit, submit to it. it. It could sound like this. Lord, this is your word that interprets me. I submit to it. You say it, I do it. I'm not reading this as someone above this. I'm reading it as somebody that submits their life to it. I am underneath this, and I am eager. So give me your Holy Spirit to show me what this says. Give me your Holy, your Holy Spirit to see something, to see how it's interpreting me, to see what it's saying to me, to show me who you are with a more clear and compelling vision. But I submit myself to this. That alone, that one step alone will change the way you read the Bible. It will change the way you handle the word of God. But there is room for us to repent. There is room for that. And that's where we've held a disregard and even an offense with it. I think a lot of us have just grown, grown away from the Bible. Grown away from the words of God. And it's because we don't think it's relevant for our life. It doesn't really affect our Tuesday mornings. It doesn't affect our date nights doesn't affect how we spend our money, how we make our money. It doesn't affect us. It's just become a good book to a different people. Let me tell you what that's doing to you. It's making you useless. It's making you useless. It's not equipping you for any occasion. 
It's not pulling you closer to the Lord. It's not showing you Jesus any more clearly. It's keeping everything a mystery, unduly. And listen, if you're here and you're just a guest or you're watching online and some of that stuff you knew about the Bible and some of it you didn't, some of that stuff you knew about Jesus, some of that stuff you didn't, I would love to just leave you with the thought that the Word became flesh in Christ for no other reason than to live, die, and live for you. That's why it came. Just as prophesied, just as promised, right on time, as expected. The Bible that we've been talking about is proof that God wants you to know him. It's proof. This is proof. He's disclosing himself. He's not hidden. He's easily found. Proof that he wants you to know him. The cross is proof of how much he loves you. The cross, the gospel, the story of God being kind to mankind, totally despite man and how man behaves, by coming to us in the person of Jesus who would live, die, and live again for us, and as he ascends to prepare a better place for us, giving us his very spirit to equip us and lead us through this world. That is meant to show you how much he loves you so that we would not live useless lives, but we would live a life where we adore Jesus, are fascinated with Jesus, and discover him new as often as we possibly can. And so what I'd submit to you is just to give your life, not just submit your life to a reading of the Bible, but the very Christ that this is the pinnacle for, the very Christ that this describes. That's what I would submit to you.